Shadow Banking Dangers in Construction. Let's have a look. Good afternoon everyone, Florian Heiser here and welcome to another episode of Heiser Says. Coffee in hand, and I thought we'd finish today by having a look at this article from the ABC. And this is to do with the Reserve Bank documents highlighting a lack of data on shadow banking. 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 And it's, well, it's used a lot in the construction sector. And the example I have here are some of the recent property developers that have gone under and where they've been using where they've been using deposit money and paying high interest and using it to pay for other projects. That's just one example where it's gotten very messy and put a whole lot of people at risk. So let's let's have a look. The Reserve Bank documents highlights lack of data on shadow banking, fintech risks, so financial technology risks. Australia's financial regulators have been navigating largely in the dark when assessing the risks shadow banking and fintech pose to financial stability, particularly in the property market, according to internal Reserve Bank documents. And I'll zoom in a bit more so we can see it larger. Responding to a freedom of information request from ABC News investigators, the Reserve Bank has released 153 pages of internal documents analyzing the risks that non-bank lenders, often dubbed shadow banks, pose to financial stability. The major takeaway from the RBA's analysis is the extent to which it and bank re regulator APRA have been operating in the dark when it comes to data on the size and nature of non-bank loans, particularly to property developers. And remember, remember we have recently had, we recently had a very huge boost in property development. A lot of foreign funding was used to purchase a lot of these apartments. And a lot of these developers will only get so much money from the bank or they'll use bridging finance to get the you know to make the difference they'll get investors in get quite messy so as recently as july 2019 the rba's financial stability department noted in a memo that limited data was available around the scale of non-bank lending to developers forcing the analysis to rely on anecdotes within the industry well we know anecdotes are what what our people, politicians and leaders and the Black Economy Task Force love, love to refer to when they, you know, make all of their decisions. It's just how much of it could just be confirmation bias for them. They go to a meeting and get some anecdotal evidence. Oh, yeah, that, com we com that confirms confirmation bias. They only see what they want. Yeah. So liaison suggests that non-ADI lenders have been funding significant shares of new developments, they observe. So they charge much higher rates than banks, but accept lower pre-sales and other and other loan to value ratios could contribute to the overbuilding of apartments. But risk see, seems small given sharp falls in approvals. So, well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of they missed the boat on this now. They should have looked at this. They should have looked at this back then in 2012, 2013. OK, when we had overheating the market now building approvals are significantly lower than they were in the past so they've missed the boat and perhaps that could be why we've got housing affordability which is just skyrocketed from this data this is when they should have looked at it 2012 not now not now so non-authorized deposit taking institutions non-adis are lenders that do not take deposits from the general public and are therefore not subject to oversight by apra 
The possibility that non-bank lenders could finance an excess supply of apartments is one that has concerned analysis within RBA's financial stability at least since the early 2017. An ABC's FOI request asked for documents created between 2017 and 2019. Well, they're kind of too late by the time that happens, guys. And if there's an oversupply, then the prices will go down. Isn't that what you want? You want to, what do they want? Do they want to address housing market or not? You know, housing affordability or not? The alternative market appears to be most established in Melbourne, where there is still strong conviction among developers about the outlook, but the pullback by major banks has been relatively pronounced, particularly in inner Melbourne. Noted RBA analyst uh, Michael Gishkarina, David Norman, and Tom Roswell. The funding for these firms has historically been sourced from wealthy individuals or families, other developers, or construction firms. Of late, there's been some funding from a range of institutional investors, super funds, foreign pension, pension funds, hedge funds, and PE firms. These concerns appear to have increased a year and a half later, as outlined in an email from David Norman to other members of the RBA's Financial Stability Department. I find that funny. The RBA has a financial stability department. They're interfering in the economy to try and create stability. Is it working? I mean, come on. Just I'll bring up my favorite chart here. Yeah, financial stability, RBA. Yes, yay, go. Good work, guys. Here's the graph that makes me think we should not downplay the potential for non-ADIs to contribute to overbuilding in Melbourne, he wrote. But is overbuilding a problem? This is the question I put to you. Does it matter if they build too many? Then the price will go down. Then housing will become more affordable. Is, isn't it that just simple? People will make less return, then they'll stop developing. Isn't that how the market's meant to work, guys? Are they trying to cut into that feedback loop? So work yet to be done, basically new approvals minus work done, has really picked up in Melbourne this year. And Liaison says that a big chunk of this is being funded by non-ADIs. The industry liaison has also highlighted the high cost to developers of having to rely on non-banks to fund their projects. Well, a lot of banks won't even, won't even lend to consumers in certain parts of the city or into certain buildings when they've hit their quota. They, they want to manage their risks. And if other people are willing to take on that risk, they can charge a higher interest rate. I, I, I'm failing to see what the big issue is here. Honestly, I'm failing to see what the big issue is here. Is, the RB, is it that the RBA, the RBA isn't happy that people are going around their mechanism for controlling the economy. And it's weakening the effect of things like the cash rate. Well, let me know your theories in the comments below, everyone. So non-ADI lending to residential property developers is growing faster than bank lending. And the Financial Stability Department wrote in a memo dated the 7th of February 2019. Until recently... There's not been enough to offset banks pulling back. Interest rates were rising. This has changed a bit recently as bank lending has stabilized. Interest rates on the loans are high, greater than 10% for developments. Because they're assuming the risk, guys. They are assuming this risk. What's wrong with that? So non-banks can create systematic risk. Oh, here we go. This feels like a hit piece against the, the non-banks. Then in March 2019, RBA financial stability analyst 
Calvin Yap warned that lending by non-bank financial institutions could create risks for the entire banking system, even if the banks had no direct financial relationship with them. The activities of NBFIs can create systematic risk through their impact on the value, here we go, on the value of banks' assets or collateral, he warned. See, he's, this is the thing. This is the thing. Because the banks, because all every mortgage signed with a bank is an asset for the bank and it's necessary to keep a certain value of assets for the bank for the amount of lending they can do, if we start seeing drastic falls in property due to oversupply, perhaps and maybe an increase in housing affordability, it's going to cause issues for the banks maintaining those ratios. That's the real reason. That's why they're worried about this. That's why they want to step into the market to manipulate it, to influence it, so we don't have this. Because all I'm reading here is a potential people willing to take on higher, higher expenses, lenders willing to take on higher risk, and potentially more construction work going on that will result in a reduction in the cost. Supply and demand, people. With credit being so cheap, that's going to help too, isn't it? NBFIs can exacerbate credit and asset price cycles by adding to demand during the upswing or withdrawing from the market during the downturn. Yes, and that's... Anyway. Well, this is also true of banks. Yes, it is. Banks do the same thing. NBFIs are not subject to prudential supervision, which can, in theory... And in theory, yes, sure. Constrain risk-taking and curb pro-cyclical lending behavior. I'm cynical of that, everyone. However, while Mr. Yap acknowledged there is some concern that non-bank lending to apartment property develop developers may continue to boost supply, placing further downward pressure on property prices, he concluded overall the financial stability risk from F uh, NFBI activity are assessed to be limited at this point although risks associated with property development bear watching. It is hard, though, for the bank to accurately assess those risks, as most non-bank financiers of property development are not compelled to tell authorities or statistical agencies how much they are lending, where and to whom. This is something which may change after new laws were enacted by the federal government to enhance APRA's information collecting powers and widen its oversight jurisdiction where the regulator feels that is necessary. Recently passed legislation changes to the financial sector, Collection Data Act 20, 2001, mean that many entities that previously had no or only voluntary reporting requirements will be mandatorily reporting to APRA, the RBA told a Council of Financial Regulators meeting in August 2018. These changes will improve regulators' ability to monitor shadow banking activities and their financial stability implications. APRA has also gained the power to make rules relating to the lending activity of non-ADI lenders, where APRA considers that the prov provisions of finance by one or more non-ADI lenders materially contributes to risk of instability in the Australian financial system. However, the document released under FOI revealed that discussions were still continuing between RBA and APRA over which extra entities should be compelled to report data to the regulators meaning it could still be some time before financial authorities have an accurate picture of how much property developers are lending to non-bank financials to keep projects afloat. Well, there you go, guys. So fintech boom flying under the radar. Another area where regulators and policymakers are inadequately visible, really, 
is the burgeoning fintech sector, mainly non-bank lenders offering consumer or small business loans. More than two years ago, Calvin Yap from the RBA's Financial Stability Department labeled it a small but fast-growing subset of the shadow banking system. As with shadow banking in general, Mr. Yap pointed out there is limited data on the sector as most fintechs credit products are non-ADIs with minimal reporting requirements. The RBA cited the Asia-Pacific Alternative Finance Benchmarking Report produced by the Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance, which estimates that fintech companies lent $738 million in Australia in 2016, representing just 0.1% of shadow bank lending activities and a trivial, trivial share of the $3 million loan total loans outstanding. So nothing. Nothing. Financial stability risks from this activity are limited. They're non-existent given the small size of the industry. But there's already some evidence that a few banks are lowering their lending standards in order to remain competitive. There's already some examples which suggest that banks have begun to compete on lending standards. So NAB has developed an in-house fintech business loans unit QuickBiz that competes directly with fintech lenders by offering unsecured small business loans with fast turnarounds and recently doubled the maximum loan size offered to $100,000. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a good... This is creating innovation from our banking sector and getting more opportunities for money into small business. We want that. We don't want all of our wealth simply put in houses. We don't want people just to flip houses. It's the only way to build wealth. We want it in innovation. We want it in small businesses. We want it in things that employ people, things that create jobs, things that will help lift the economic complexity of our country. So we're not just a bunch of people flipping houses, selling coffee to each other and shipping iron ore overseas. This is a good thing. This is good. And if people take on too much, much risk and get into trouble, then they learn a valuable lesson the hard way. That's called life. You dust yourself off, you get back up and you try again. Burning 100 grand on a business maybe is a much better investment than a whole lot of money people spend on university or other education. Anyway, back to the article. However, Mr. Yap added there were other risks. An alternative is that instead of competing, banks could facilitate growth in fintech as a way to avoid prudential oversight and circumvent lending restrictions. This could create a system-wide loosening in credit standards and um, contingent risks between fintech credit and banks. All of Australia, may, all of Australia's major banks have many of the small and many of the smaller lenders have invested in or partnered with third-party fintech companies although there is no evidence so far that they've done so to evade tougher APRA regulations on bank lending standards. Although Mr. Yap did not did note that fintechs often targeted riskier borrowers. There is some evidence which suggests many fintech lenders are targeting borrowers that would not qualify for bank loans, such as businesses with shorter operating histories without assets or securities, he wrote. Yes, and they can take that risk. That is fine. I mean, come on, guys. Every small business owner, share in the comments how much of a pain in the ass it is to get, get money as a small business owner. How, even, how hard it is to get a mortgage for a house as a small business owner. So for example, the ASIC survey found that almost all outstanding FinDEC company loans and at least three quarters of FinDEC business loans were unsecured. So that means they can't take you home when they, go, when they get it. For many FinTechs, which are peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms that simply connect lenders to borrowers for a fee, Mr. Yab said there was little incentive to ensure the loans could be repaid. Fintech platforms have a short-term incentive to lower credit standards to approve more borrowers because they rely on origination revenue and credit losses are borne by investors. 
similar to the conflict of interest of securities without skin in the game, he argued. Although Mr. Yap added, this could have economic benefits as well. There we go, finally. This could lead to more efficient credit allocation by facilitating credit provision to previously underserviced market segments, reducing the time taken for borrowers to access money and lowering the cost of finance for some borrowers. While the RBA appeared to be relatively unconcerned about the broader financial stability risks from FinDAC back in 2017, Mr. Yap did sound this warning. FinTech platforms are particularly reliant on investor confidence and subject to investors, investor hurting and swinging in risk appetite, particularly when retail investors make up a large portion of the funding, he cautioned. FinTech credit currently poses little risk to financial stability due to its small size. However, it has been growing very rapidly and is likely to continue doing so, especially if banks continue to be ready suppliers of funding. All the evidence over the two years since the RBA report is that FinTech sector is continuing to grow apace and therefore the financial stability risk it carries along with it. But it's still tiny and insignificant. I don't know, guys. What do you think about this one? What do you think about this one? I think in some ways it will force the bank to maybe take on a little bit risk, more risk of themselves and encourage some investment in something they may not have approved otherwise. Have you invested in a fintech? What do you think about them? Let me know your thoughts and opinions in the comments below. But thank you all very much for watching. Please like, share, and subscribe to the channel. If you're a fan and want to help us produce more content, we have a Patreon where you can join for a monthly fee. We also have the ability for you to join the channel here on YouTube. You can also use our affiliate links at Independent Reserve for your crypto trading and Amazon and eBay for your consumer purchases. We have our very own merchandise on the Heisers website, handmade pocket squares, and finally, PayPal for people who want to donate that way. Thank you all very much. Take care, and I will talk to you later. Bye for now.